Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hey gang, welcome to a new year and a new episode of Blockhead. I am so happy to welcome you here. Happy 2022. I hope it has started off well for you and yours this year. Uh, It's got to be better than last year, but it seems like we say that all the time, right? This year's got to be better than last year, and I'm hoping that it will be for all of us uh, this coming coming 12 months. Uh, It's kind of an artificial designation, but uh, nevertheless, that's how we live our lives, within these designations. And I hope that the next 12 months are better for you than the last 12 months. Of course, Who knows? The last 12 months might have been great for you. I don't know. But uh, I hope it continues to be great, if that's the case. And for those of us for whom the last 12 months have been kind of rocky, had their ups and downs, let's hope it's smooth sailing or or better than average sailing, one way or the other, you know? When you think about, though, what sailing requires, it requires a good, steady wind. I like wind, as long as it's not too strong (laughs) and things start blowing off the roof and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, okay. Uh, I'm hoping for some, some happy sailing. I don't, uh, you know, I gotta stop this analogy. Uh, I didn't intend to talk about sailing, but I never know where these things are going to go. Uh, I should be talking about comics and comics is what we're here for. And today we have a wonderful cartoonist by the name of Ryan Claytor and Ryan has a Kickstarter right now for a wonderful adaptation of a poem by his grandfather. And it's called A Hunter's Tale. And if you're, you're, after listening to this, you're going to want to head right over to ahunterstale.com and uh, and show your support for this wonderful project because uh, it's it's a beautiful, very lyrical adaptation of, of a legacy, really, a poem that his grandfather left and uh, telling a story about an encounter that he had when he went out to hunt one morning. And I guess his grandfather was a hunter. And uh, that's an interesting story in and of itself. Wait till you hear it. It's really interesting. His grandfather lived a very interesting life. And uh, so he was, he had to hunt for necessity. You know, it wasn't just sport, it was necessity. And so uh, this is a, a tale about an encounter with, I believe it's with a deer, and uh, a, a kind of meeting of the minds, if you will, which has an un, has unexpected results. And so uh, it's a very, very interesting story. And Ryan has also done, uh, not only has he got this beautiful work that's up there now on Kickstarter at ahunterstale.com, but he's also, uh, he is a pinball fanatic, a pinball aficionado who has devoted his skills, his formidable skills and talents to uh, a work called Coin Op 
Carnival. And you can go to coinopcarnival.com. That's one word, coinopcarnival.com. And you'll, you'll see this is a really cool project. Uh, it's a collaborative project that Ryan works on with his partner. And, um, and it is uh, really kind of all about pinball machines. And if you're into pinball or not into pinball, Maybe you're just into the pinball graphics, which are things that I think are pretty cool. Uh, you'll you want to check this out. Uh, it, it's at coinopcarnival.com, and it's a magazine. And there's going to be four issues. The first one is out already, and it's got comics. It's got these pretty cool illustrations and diagrammatic and cross-section illustrations, you know, all those kinds of things. As a kid, I used to love that kind of stuff. Maybe you do, too. That, that talks about the workings and mechanics of pinball machines. Uh, interviews, or at least one interview, with like the world's greatest pinball designer. And I guess he's like, you know, he's well into his 90s now. And late 90s and so there, there, there's this really cool interview and there's all kinds of hints about pinballs and strategies and, and you name it and it's a very colorful beautiful magazine and you, 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 I think if you go over to coinopcarnival.com you'll be just as entranced as I was so check that out okay because it's great so uh, Ryan is also a professor of comics can you believe it? A professor of comics at Michigan State University, where Ryan has actually built a, a small program in comic studies uh, for himself and for his students. And uh, that's that's unique. Uh, it's pretty cool. And Ryan's a great, great, great guy and a great conversationalist. So I think you'll find this conversation to be really um, engaging and interesting and taking us into, you know, some areas we don't usually go to, like pinball machines. Although, you know, last time we had Dennis Kitchen on, and we probably could have gotten into an interesting conversation with Dennis about pinball machines. But that's later on. So, already, I've been talking for five minutes. Let's just say the heck with it and go right to the interview. Let's go right to the videotape and uh, check out the interview with Ryan, okay? So, without further ado, welcome to Blockhead. Welcome to 2022. I hope it's going to be a great year for all of us and for Blockhead. And uh, now, here we are, Ryan Claytor and myself in conversation. Hey there, Ryan. Welcome to Blockhead. Thanks so much for having me on, Jeff. I really appreciate being here. Oh, it's it's great to have you here, and I'm excited to talk about your new Kickstarter and your fascination with pinball machines. <laughs> yes, if the listeners could see behind me, I've got a few of them flanking me right now. So I'm, I'm happy to chat Kickstarter, happy to chat new book, happy to chat pinball. Uh, I'm yours. <laughs> well, why don't we start with the Kickstarter and then we'll get into the pinball machines. It's kind of a lately I've had a lot of pinball fanatics on the show. I had uh, I don't know if you know Dennis Kitchen is a one of the mega pinball machine collectors. No, not pinball. I'm sorry, I got that all wrong. He's a jukebox collector. Oh, what uh, am I okay. thinking? Okay. All right. I've got one of those too. <laughs> Do you? Really? Yep. Okay. All right, so we're gonna, we're, we are going to have to turn the conversation in that direction. But let's talk about the Kickstarter first. Sure. Uh, the, the Kickstarter goes up when? So the Kickstarter runs from January 1st, 2022 to January 31st, 2022. So the month of January, it's going to be live. And if anybody's looking for it, they can go to ahunterstale.com. 
that's the name of the book, A Hunter's Tale. And uh, this new book that we're talking about is uh, basically it was crafted from my late grandfather's poem. So he wrote this poem about 40 years ago now, and it's been with me almost my entire life. And it's really resonated with me for a very long time. And unlike a lot of poetry, I, at least maybe I'm showing my naivete with poetry, but I feel like most poetry, you have to read it and reread it and kind of decipher it and talk about what you might think it means. But with my grandfather's poem, it's very narratively driven. It's very visual in its prose. Uh, I feel like I've been able to see this poem for a really long time. And uh, I, I, I think that my cartooning chops have finally caught up with the vision that I've had in my head for this poem for a very long time. And over the course of the past six months or so, I've been working on a comic book adaptation of this poem. Um, so I've stayed extraordinarily faithful to my grandfather's words and really just sort of turning it into comic book form. And that's the Kickstarter that I'm running right now at ahunterstale.com. Ahunterstale.com. And um, so, and that's all one word. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's backtrack a little bit. When did you first... First of all, let's just lay it out there. This is called A Hunter's Tale. So I'm assuming then the story is about his experience as a hunter. Yes. Thank you for asking. I probably should have covered that too. <laughs> so the, <laughs> okay. the poem is about these two seemingly very different subjects, a hunter and his prey. And uh, they form this unlikely understanding of one another. And ultimately the book is about reciprocated empathy. And this is a theme that I feel is sorely needed in our society, in our community, in our world right now. Uh, you know, so often these days, I feel like people just are not listening to each other anymore. And it, it makes me really sad. And I feel like uh, I, I'm really excited to get this work into more people's hands and to extend the life of my grandfather's body of work and to be a, you know, a, a small part of that sort of a conduit to getting his work into, into more people's hands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when, when was it that you first encountered the poem I mean, did, did you, and how did you encounter it? I, I first encountered it after my grandfather's church did a uh, printing of a number of his poems. I'd say there was probably maybe two or three dozen poems in this, you know, self-published, you know, printed stapled zine, for lack of a better word, of his poetry. And that's been with us for as long as I can remember. And I've read through that booklet uh, quite a number of times. And whenever I get to this poem, I'm always kind of stopped dead in my tracks and I'm left sitting there thinking and just sort of admiring his um, uh, his storytelling ability through prose, through poetry. And uh, yeah, I, I uh, so that's been with me as long as I can remember to answer your question. <laughs> as long as, so we're going back to you're, you're still, you're a child when you've, you started reading this. There's, you're encountering this when you're like seven, eight, nine years old, somewhere in there. Um, probably maybe even a little bit later than that. If okay. I'm, I'm 
piecing things together right because I think his church did not put together that body of poetry for a while after he wrote it. So maybe I was double digits, 10, 11, 12, something in there. Um, I was born in 1979, just to give some context. So the poem was written in 1983. So I do not remember 1983. <laughs> I was too young I do. at the time. <laughs> Quite well, but, in fact. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so the the booklet that was put together is the thing that I remember, and probably just you know pre-adolescence is when that came into my life. So it was a pretty formative experience reading that poem. Was it a surprise to you that your grandfather was, you, you know, uh, uh, well, I hesitate to use the word artist, but I mean, he was a literary artist. So, I mean, was it, a, was that a surprise to you? Um, I, I don't know that I had the wherewithal to really ponder that question at the time, but in retrospect, I think so. I mean, cause he was a, railroad dispatcher for many years, but he had many side hustles. You know, he was interested in real estate. Um, he was an expert marksman. He went out hunting. Um, I have never hunted in my life. And so this was kind of an, uh, a good practice of empathy for me to even approach this poem. Cause when I first saw the title of the poem, I thought, oh gosh, I'm I'm not even going to go there. I, I don't think I can handle what's inside this poem, but I'm so glad that I did because it just completely upended my expectations of uh, of what he would have been writing about. So, um, yeah, it, it was a little surprising to me, but after getting to know some of his history, uh, I, I, I think it's a lot less surprising. It's, I'll, I'll try to explain that here. So, mm-hmm. um when he was a young man, um, he was living in the Midwest in a little town called Alma, Illinois. And at the time, you know, shortly after the turn of the 20th century, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. And at the time, from my understanding, this was pretty much a death sentence. And so the cure, the hopeful cure at the time, was to send him to the deserts of Arizona mm-hmm. in hopes that the dry desert air would dry out the tuberculosis and he was basically sent off into the wilderness to die and he was living off the land when he got out there so um he had a 22 rifle with him and uh he could only take one shot to capture his food and that's because the game warden was nearby and if he took a second shot he would have been brought in. Uh, the game warden would have understood where that sound was coming from after the second shot. And uh, and then he would not have had the dry desert air anymore. He would have been you know, in some cell, I suppose. Um, so he was really careful about uh, how he was living off the land and uh, consequently became an expert marksman. Uh, I mean, when you have to shoot your food in one shot or else you don't eat that day. I mean, you, you get pretty good. So, uh, he had a really interesting story and I, I guess you can surmise since I'm here, he made it through all that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that those experiences probably formed his, uh, understanding of how life works with one another, how life is symbiotic, how he was, taking, but yet at the same time, he's being very careful about what he is taking. Um, you know, I, I feel like I am so removed from 
my food these days. Like it, it <laughs> arrives in the grocery store and I put it in a refrigerator, but I am not part of capturing it or growing it or any of that. And I think he had such an intimate knowledge of that, that that probably informed his respect for these lives that were feeding his own mm-hmm. and probably this poem that he eventually wrote. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, m- multiple things are popping in my head right now. And I think uh, one of the things that, that's interesting is the point that you're making is that we are so distanced from the process of um, – you know, how our food gets to us, uh, for the most part, the industrialized agriculture, industrialized farming, um, all of that, which, you know, when you encounter it in person is, is so horrific, really, in so many ways, uh, you know, compared to what you're talking about, what your grandfather's experience was. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, there really is something to be said and I'm not somebody who advocates hunting. I'm not a, I'm not a, never held a gun in my life and, um, and, you know, uh, never had reason or cause to, and, uh, I'm by nature a pacifist. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a completely different worldview to me, the idea of, of, being a hunter and yet the experience that you're talking about that your grandfather has seems to me so much more in tune with a natural way of living than you know the industrialized food production that surrounds us now which you know has led to so many environmental consequences of you know terrible well just you know with terrible effects and so it's it's really something to think about. Um, and, it, and it goes hand in hand with the idea that, I mean, when we talk about, you know, indigenous peoples and and, for example, Native Americans and the culture that grew up around hunting and and, you know, when you, t- you take it back to something like, oh, I don't know, cave painting, you know, and the, the paintings at Lascaux or or throughout anywhere that there are hunter-gatherer cultures, there are all these images, you know, that are given over to the sacrifice of the animal um, for the health of the tribe or the health of the hunter. And, and you know, there's this idea that there was some kind of ritual, you know, celebration of the life that's been sacrificed so that the other might continue. And, and um, an understanding that, that, I think that that life is a cycle, you know, that there's a cyclical and there's this aspect of giving and receiving and, and we all take part in it. And, um, and that there's something to be honored in the sacrifice of, of the animal in this instance, that you need to pay homage to that sacrifice. You know, uh, it's a, it's a very, um, I think very moving experience. And of course it's a kind of quasi religious experience too. And, uh, um, I'm not a religious person, but I can see the significance of it, you know, as, uh, we don't do that anymore. You know, we don't have that connection, uh, that yeah, understanding. There, there's, there's so much mass farming going on these days that you alluded to. It's just such a wildly different, uh, culture that we're in today. Uh, but yeah, bouncing off of something that you said a little earlier, you said you never hunted, never picked up a gun. And I, am very similar to you in that <laughs> I we picked am, up pens. <laughs> right, exactly right <laughs> in that you know I, I am not a hunter I have not hunted but at the same time it, 
understanding my grandfather's history, understanding what he went through in order for me to even be here, yeah. uh, you know, really changed my outlook on on things. You know, I, I think that I was a little judgmental about that prior to gaining a better understanding sure. of what he needed to do in order to further his life, in order to continue his family, uh, his eventual family. He didn't have one at the time. Um, so, yeah, I think it all really boils down to this uh, theme of empathy that runs through his poem, that runs through this book. Um, so I, I, that is a message that I really want to get out to people, that there is still room for conversation. There's still room for disagreement. There's still room for different viewpoints in the world. And that is okay. And we can find common grounds. I mean, if Jeff and I can think similarly about hunting, for example, but still find ways in which, you know, that's, uh, you know, possibly acceptable in our worlds, even though we don't hunt. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, of middle ground to be found. And I just think it's so sad that, you know, conversations are reduced to name calling and uh, brief flippant online posts these days that, um, yeah, it, it would just be so nice to be able to see uh, conversation <laughs> enter our world again. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, that's kind of what this show is about really, you know, it's, it's yeah. about having a conversation and, and uh, which is weird because it's digital, you know, we're online <laughs> and it's made possible by by that technology. At the same time, I think what you're alluding to is a, a lot of what's pushing us apart is this digital world, you know, Facebook and uh, social media, which what, what was it? I saw the other night, some some silly TV show and the lead character is saying there's nothing social about media, you know, and, <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a pretty good line uh, in, in a lot of ways, because it does just sort of reinforce you know, our corners, uh, as they say, our, our selective bubbles. And uh, at the same time, I'm as guilty about it, uh, of it as anybody else is, you know. And um, it's real easy to be that guilty, particularly, well, here's the, th okay, I'm getting way off track here. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and we'll go there, but eventually. But uh, before I go that way, <laughs> I, I, I did not want to forget, you're talking about tuberculosis in the early 20th century, and I think I mentioned this to you once before, but the cartoonist Jimmy Swinnerton, uh, who did Little Jimmy, that uh, a comic strip that was, oh, from the first half of the 20th century, uh, very successful from the, early, from the early days of the comic strip all the way through the 50s, I think. Um, James Swimmer, Swinnerton uh, was diagnosed with tuberculosis. He was sent to Arizona to die. Same thing. Um, and he didn't die. <laughs> and instead, uh, I don't know if he hunted. I imagine he probably did. But instead, he became one of um, Western America's uh, most formative and important landscape painters of the early 20th century. I mean, his mm. paintings became uh, highly collectible and very well known. And, you know, I'm talking about that that genre of art that exists uh, with under the rubric of Western landscape mm -hmm. painting, you know, the same kind of stuff you'd find Frederick Remington in and things of that nature. Um, he probably it, had a lot of time to ponder that while he was out trying to cure himself of TB. <laughs> Lots oh, of landscape around to look at. Yeah. Oh, beautiful landscape, too. And he did some, you know, very beautiful paintings. Of, he was quite an accomplished painter. 
which is kind of interesting. Um, he found a life out there also. And, um, uh, you know, it strikes also, but again, I know we're jumping around here, but one of the things you, when you were talking about your grandfather, it made me wonder, you know, was he, how was he living? Did he have a, like an itinerant life when he was there? Was he camping out and, and moving from one campsite to another? Was he, did he have a shack that he lived in? What, what was he doing? I mean, he was hiding from the game warden. So what, you know, where was he? Where was he living in that time? Is is he got to live? Does he have to live outside of the site of the game warden? What, you know, how did that? How did he facilitate that? Yeah. So from my understanding, he was living off the land while he was there. However, after living there a while, he met uh, my great great grandfather Nolan, who uh, had a family and allowed him to sort of stay on his land. It was, you know, a little removed where he was sleeping, you know, out under the stars, basically, but he allowed him to stay there. And his, uh, my great great grandfather Nolan's daughter and my grandfather got together and, uh, you know, they had my father and a few other kids. Um, so that's how. <laughs> so that's that's how they originally met. Yeah. yeah. So um, so, yeah, he was uh, living off the land, not living in a shack, not living in any um, uh, house of any sort, from my knowledge. Uh, from what I understand, it was my great great grandfather who allowed him to sort of stop roaming and be able to sort of set up camp a little bit uh, in a place for a while. Um, but still living on the ground basically it's fascinating you know yeah i mean yeah. It, it really is fascinating it's uh, hard to even imagine these days <laughs> like with the the pampered life we live it really makes you thankful for what we have well not only pampered but also restrictive in its own way i mean you know there's so many things you can and can't do um mm -hmm. Because of whether, you know, whether they're in, I mean, laws that may be well-intentioned, but for the most part, um, you know, living free off the land in Arizona or Nevada someplace or Utah, um, I would, I would think that that would be a fairly difficult thing to maintain given the way those territories are, uh, you know, watched and, uh, uh guarded in a sense you know even public lands i think are guarded but of course the territory is huge so what the heck do i know um but you know there's a beautiful song by the way by the beach boys um i think it was recovered on a live album by fleetwood mac in the late 70s early 80s and it's called farmer's daughter and um if you ever run across it it's a really beautiful song and um Fleetwood Mac did a beautiful job on that song. Beautiful. I was going to say, I'll bet that cover is really something too. <laughs> Fleetwood yeah, Mac it, has taken it. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, I remember that cause I don't have the album anymore, but I remember the song. It's kind of, I can hear it in my ears, you know, in, in my mind vaguely, cause it's been a long time since I heard it, but it was a beautiful song. But anyway, oh. your, your grandfather literally <laughs> lived that story. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to look that up after we're done here. Maybe we yeah. can, uh, intro this podcast with it or something <laughs> yeah i'll look for it too i have to hear it again I, I you know it's it's one of those things that you know gets in your head and you're like oh god i gotta hear that again yeah, um cool. so 
so it, you know the other thing that's come to my mind is this story but now we're, we're paying homage to the sacrifice of the animal you know and we're paying homage to the the life that's been given to ours and i think that's a beautiful sentiment you know this this idea that your existence is your your sustenance is is dependent upon this other life and this life has been sacrificed to yours um and that you need to honor that sacrifice i think it's a beautiful idea you know um and whenever I, I start to get choked up when I think about it, when I think about those, you know, those first um, uh, uh, shrines, really, that were built, you know, I mean, the the, um, the the Venus of Willendorf was found in a cave in Germany, right? And it was found um, in this area where there were the, there were bones from a bear, I think, something like that. Or, or maybe I'm conflating two different shrines, but all around the same period of time, early human beings were, were you know, th- there was a mystery about life and death. And, and, you know, the, 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 in some ways, the first time that they really thought about it to any great degree, at least that we know of, that was with the sacrifice of the animal and, um, and seeing no distinction between those lives, but understanding that there's value, you know, and I think this is one of the things that industrial industrialized farming does it devalues the life, you know, uh, it's being sacrificed, whether it's a chicken or it's a cow or you know, um, it devalues it. We come to think of it as is a, a non-entity. You know, yeah. And, and like you said, even taking it back to the cave paintings, I mean, they're obviously pedestalizing their food because they're documenting it, they're painting it, they're preserving it in some way. Even though it's gone now, it's helping them to live. But you know, being able to archive that in some way, I think, shows a reverence toward it. Oh, absolutely. Reverence is a, is the perfect word, you know, and uh, and and it's something. It's interesting. This whole discussion. It's something. It just convinces me. You know, we had some friends over a week or so ago who were vegan, and uh, we had a long discussion about the nature of that and what it means to be vegan. And, and of course, it's it's not an easy road to take if you've you know been raised uh, in in uh, the world of meat, you know, but. Um, uh, nevertheless, it was it, it, it's something that is well worth considering, and uh, uh, particularly given this discussion that we're having here, which I think is interesting. Um, so the other thing that was running through my head was, man, you know, our ancestors too are, are somebody are oftentimes, you know, in a culture that's really focused on the moment, right? We're, we're, I mean, here's the thing, the older you get, the farther away from pop culture you get and the less it means to you. <laughs> You know, and yet you turn on the television or you t- you you turn on pop culture or, or pop music or whatever, and you're constantly inundated with this idea that you need to be up to the moment, right? And that if you're not somehow you're living, you're ignorant and living in a cave someplace. But why would you? You know, I'm 60 years old. Why would I care what you know 20 year old kids are listening to? It really doesn't mean anything to me. You know what I mean? It doesn't. Why would I? But anyway, the culture reinforces this idea that we have to be up to the moment. And what really matters is not only what's happening now, but also um, youth. You know, youth in general. And I think about one of the great regrets I have growing older is that is that I didn't spend enough time talking to my both my parents and my grandparents about who they were and where they came from and what their what the events of their lives were, you know, that the, their 
biographies, but also how they felt, you know, as human beings going through what they were going through and the times they were living in, all of that stuff. And it seems to me what you're doing in connecting, you know, to your grandfather is so important uh, is, is something that for all of us, really, you know, uh, because we're we're not really we tend to think of ourselves as autonomous beings, entities unto ourselves. But in reality, we are all chains and, you know, links in a chain. Right. And and that chain goes on. And uh, we're we're not re- we're not the end, you know, or the beginning. We are just part of something larger. And uh, it's important to know what what preceded, you know, uh, because we're yeah. never going to know what comes after. But we. we right. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And I have regrets about not having the wherewithal to talk to my grandparents in greater depth about their experiences. But I do feel fortunate that I have done that with my parents. You know, I've sat down with my dad for numbers of nights with a tape recorder and I have multiple cassette tapes of just like taking him through a chronology of his life. Like what is the earliest thing you remember? What are some formative parts of your life? And uh, I've since, you know, moved those cassette tapes over to MP3 files so they can stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, I I agree. I think that's so important because it's we we lose that so quickly, like just, uh, you know, two generations ago, like right before my father. I don't know a whole lot about my grandfather aside from what I've told you so far. I wish I knew more about him. I wish I could have asked him questions about his time uh, living off the land about meeting great, great grandpa Nolan about meeting his first wife about, uh, all of these things. You know, I I wish I could have got those stories out of him or recorded them. And, and, you know, even just a generation before that, like hardly anything is known about that. And then it's gone, it's gone. And I, I hope that, um, we can all take some time to, sit down with the people in our life and, and and capture that somehow, you know, through oral history or something, but that's going to be so valuable on a personal familial level moving into the future. Cause just so little of it exists from, you know, 50 oh, years and, and back further, oh, yeah. you know, pre-digital, you know, uh, I mean, nowadays, uh, and I don't know if this is so much true of you, but certainly, you know, your child and, and, uh, well, uh, the kids that we're teaching, both of us are teaching in school, uh, now, um, their, their entire lives are documented, mm-hmm. um, ad nauseum, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> to, to the point, you know, first there, there are videotapes of the first time they, they're sitting on the toilet, you know, mm-hmm. and those are out there in the public for people to see. And, and, and <laughs> as well as, you know, every crazy thing you did as an undergraduate, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when you drank too much or party too hard, all this, I mean, thank God, I'm, I'm so glad that none of that stuff exists. Uh, um, right. It, it from, used to be relegated to, uh, negatives and paper film that could be destroyed, but now it's like all of that digital imagery lives on forever in some capacity. You know, yeah. you could escape, you 
could escape your your nerdy past in high school <laughs> you know if bet your bad behavior at a party or two and you know i mean let's be frank you know we we were all bad we all behaved badly at parties when we were you know out of control in high school and and college and and uh and thank god that nobody knows anything about that none of us remember you know and and it's not there for anybody to look at, look at and there's a, some real benefits to it you know uh so but now you know everything's documented but no um you know the lives of my parents are in my head and and my brothers and si- my brother and sister's heads but they they don't and my aunt you know but they don't exist anyplace else and and the same is true of my grandparents and um those stories have are unless i sat down to record them those stories are lost for through from to time and and uh, as most of us will be um you know, uh, dust to dust. Right. But so be it. Um, I mean, there's not, there's something that's, again, there's something that's, that's right about that in some sense. And there's something, you know, I mean, there's, it's important. I think that the family has connection, but I don't know that it's important that the world has connection to every story. Um, it's, yeah, I it's, mean, it, it would be impossible to synthesize all family histories, but you know, for, like you said, for a family, I think it is important to understand where you come from, what your family has been through in order to put you in the position that you are today. And, uh, you know, that, that goes in many, many ways, but, uh, yeah, I, I just think that there's a real importance and for me, an interest in history, preserving history, understanding history. Um, you know, my, my wife is an art historian and oh. I've documented a n- number of different historical things in my comics. You know, my, my last book, Coin-Op Carnival, mm-hmm. that I co-wrote with my uh, very good friend. And he is an absolute technical genius. His name is Nick Baldridge. Uh, we put together this uh, comic book, this illustrated uh, magazine about electromechanical coin-operated amusement devices. So that just is a fancy way of saying old pinball and arcade games that were manufactured prior to 1978. And in there, we have an interview with the most prolific pinball designer of all time. His, (laughs) His name is Wayne Nyans, and he's still living today at 103 years old. When we published that book, we were talking with him at 99 years old. And he kept telling us, you know, you got to get this book out so I can <laughs> read it when it's done. Yeah. And we were we were busting our butts trying to get that thing done so that he could hold a copy. And here he is three years later, still just he's he's so sharp. He's so sharp. And even talking with him for the interview, you know, uh, we interviewed him for, I don't know, maybe uh, a couple hours. And uh-huh. he told us so many things. But then over the course of illustrating the book, I had so many more questions for him. And so I would be calling him up every other week or so with historical questions. And uh, I wanted to get this right. I wanted this to be a historical record that we were creating. And he remembered everything from his time in Coinop. He described buildings to me that no longer exist and there are no records of. So there was a, a building, the Chicago Coin Gottlieb shared building in Chicago where he uh, first started working for Gottlieb and then continued working for the next 40 years of his career. Um, 
So this building, I looked it up in historical records. I called the Chicago Museum of History. I contacted uh, pinball historians. Uh, Wayne himself did not have a picture. This this did not exist anywhere except, well, I mean, visually it did not mm -hmm. exist, except in Wayne's mind. And I finally, I was about to throw up my hands when I thought, I'll bet Wayne remembers this building. And so I called him and I said, hey, can you describe this building to me? And then I will make an artist rendition. And then you can say, yes, this is right, or no, this needs to change. And we did that. We went through probably about a dozen iterations of this building before he said, yep, that's it. That's the building. And now there's three different iterations of this building in Coinop Carnival number one, a building that otherwise would have been lost to history now exists at least in illustrated form and that's thanks to wayne <laughs> that's pretty and to you too and your perseverance uh that's pretty cool i mean uh you know it reminds me of um it's interesting i i live in a, a, a you know a community that i would say is um it's not a transient community i mean it's been here you know for a hundred some years but uh but Nevertheless, there are, well, like so many places in America, there are these, these commercial parkways. And since I, I grew up in this place near, nearby this place and, um, and the evolution of this place has never really been documented. I mean, there are some things that are documented, but there are other things that are completely lost to history. Not mm -hmm. uh, like if you were asking, you know, did anybody take pictures of this, that, and the other thing on the parkway? Well, they took pictures of some things, but not everything. And so there are buildings that you can, re you have a vague recollection of, but they come and they go and they disappear. And so it's interesting trying to, it's like, you know, there's this ephemeral quality and this, of course, that's what life is, right? It's ever changing, but you know, there's these ghosts that exist there that you can't, unless somebody really has a record of it, they are, the history is never complete, you know? Mm -hmm. There yeah. are pieces, pieces of it that are always missing. Your mention of the evolution of your town reminds me of R. Crumb's A Short History of America. I'm sure you've seen that oh, poster yeah, yeah, before. Sure. It's one of my favorite comics, uh, you know, oh, yeah. starting from rolling hills to a felled tree to a railroad line to, you know, a little dispatch office. And then it continues to build and build and get paved and have multiple roads and cars after horse and buggy. You know, it's it's an incredible comic. Uh, it it is an incredible comic. It, it reminds me, too, of that. There's that book here. Um, yes. And I, who's the artist who did that? It's a brilliant book. Uh, McGuire. Uh, yeah. is it Richard McGuire. I think you're right. I think you're right. But I could be wrong. <laughs> but but it's a brilliant book. And the idea that, you know, focusing on here, of course, that conceit has been used elsewhere. Um, I think probably the most famous example is E.L. Doctorow and Ragtime. I don't know if you've ever read that book, um, but that was a book where he uh, he had moved into a house in Westchester. I knew I think it was in New Rochelle or somewhere around there. And he was staring at his typewriter and staring at a crack in the wall. And as he began to stare in the crack in the wall, he began to imagine life in this house because it was a, an old house, you know, previous lives that lived in this house. And it led him from one place to another to another to telling a story about lives that took place in and around this building that he was living in. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a fascinating process uh, to imagine, but also try to reconstruct, you know, what did this corner look like? 
just this little quarter. And that, mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of what you were doing. You know, what did what did this little building look like? It's it's lost to history. So let's reconstruct it. It's a pretty cool project. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it, it was this building that had such uh, an integral part of coin-op history that did not visually exist. And that just, I don't know, that just stuck in my craw. I thought, man, here's an opportunity for us to preserve this. Uh, we have, you know, maybe one of the last people alive who remember that building. Yeah. And if I don't take this opportunity to uh talk with wayne and work through this with him when will it happen probably not ever so i I feel so thankful to wayne that he was willing to go through that process with me because it was not quick it literally took probably a couple months to come up with that building because i would do an iteration and then we would talk on the phone and then i would email it to him and we'd talk again, but you know, he was 99, almost a hundred years old at the time. And so our conversations did not last an incredible amount of time. He'd get tired and I'd say, Oh, you know, I'll, I'll chat with you next week. And, uh, you know, it was just such a, an enjoyable process, uh, making that whole interview with him. Cause there were so many stories like that, where I would encounter something and, you know, have a clarifying question for him. And it was just, such a treat not only to have primary source right in front of you not in front of, but over a phone call that i could consult at a moment's notice but also you know the friendship that resulted from that i mean i i consider wayne a friend now and for me to be able to say that is like saying I'm friends with Michael Jordan. You know, this is the most (laughs) prolific pinball designer of all time ever in the history of the universe. And I have two, three, four, maybe more of his games sitting right behind me right now. And, uh, you know, it's that is just such a surreal thing to have happen in this life that, that I could become close to this person who's had, uh, you know, such a positive effect on mine. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, as you said that, you know, you've got four, four pinball machines behind you and my wife gets upset at me for, for, four four football cards, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative, right? It's all relative. But anyway, uh, and, and of course thousands of comic books, but we won't go there. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to make a pitch for you to move out to Michigan. Cause we have these things called basements out here. They are fabulous. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey pal i have a barn, I have a barn. Uh, that and, sounds and, like you have plenty of room for football i got <laughs> plenty of room but i really want to start moving stuff out there but uh, you know it's all the barn has got lots of cracks and broken windows so uh unfortunately uh it's it's but all of my artwork is out there so you know the, the it's fodder for mice <laughs> all of my artwork incredible uh, life life's you know whatever accumulation of crap um anyway so uh, you know okay so this is fascinating but, uh, you know, I have to say, I've in all my life, right, and I'm 60, so I've met some people, uh, I've never really known anybody who was like a pinball fanatic. I've known people <laughs> who like to play pinball, you know, and, and hanging out when I was younger, guys who wanted to, you know, who preferred to spend a lot of their free time playing pinball. But I never knew anybody who was really like so into it, man. How did, <laughs> how did that happen to you? 
Oh, Jeff, come on over. I'll convert you to the dark side. Oh, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my dad, he had a game or two in our basement when I was growing up. And I'm sure that's where the seed was planted. You know, I remember playing games as a kid down in our basement. And then I forgot about pinball for, I don't know, probably a couple decades, actually. And it wasn't until after I moved from California, I'm born and raised and lived in California until about, I don't know, maybe 12, 13, 14 years ago now when my wife and I moved to Michigan and we both are teaching at Michigan State University now. Mm -hmm. um, so when we moved out here, I was you know getting to know the area and there's this place called Pinball Pete's in town. <laughs> and uh, it's, you and had no I thought, choice. right. I was like, man, I remember doing that. So of course I go down there and then, man, it just hooked its claws into me deep. I started going down there and playing again and remembering how fun this was. And then there was a flyer on the wall that said, there's a pinball convention. I'm like, what in the <laughs> world is that? So I went to this thing and Jeff, I kid you not, I played nine straight hours of pinball that day and came home <laughs> to my wife and told her, oh my God, I, I think, I think. I might need a pinball machine. <laughs> and so that that one has now turned into, uh, I hesitate to even say a number, it's it's over a dozen at this point. And, you know, researching the history and the artwork and the mechanics and the designers and the companies and the competitions. And the, it's just such a rich and deep hobby. There's so much to explore in it. And I love the fact that you can enjoy it at the most base level, which is fighting gravity. You're trying to keep the ball above the flippers. But the more you get into it, the more you understand that each separate game, each title has its own unique rule sets and ways to exploit that game. And there are limitless possibilities of... Uh, not only uh, rules for the game, but also game mechanics. And it's it's such a physical game. And these days, you know, everything is digital. You can download an app on your phone in seconds. But, you know, you got to kind of hunt around for a pinball machine that's like, you know, sifting through long boxes in a comic book store trying to find something you want. And, uh, you know, you, you, you find a title that you think might be interesting and try to track that down. There's a whole, like treasure hunt aspect to it but beyond that i really enjoy researching the history of it too uh, which is probably obvious since my last book was all about that so uh i don't know i, I just think pinball is such a multifaceted, enjoyable hobby i just i can't envision it not being in my life <laughs> <laughs> so is your does your wife play pinball also she humors me. She humors me once in a while. Yeah, she she definitely enjoys playing pinball and she's got some uh, titles that she uh, really enjoys, which, uh, of course, if you know my wife's uh, my wife's interests are very expensive pinball titles <laughs> <laughs> matches other areas of her life. She has very, very high class taste. Uh -huh. Well, <laughs> so, I, I, I was going to say that, you know, to your your 
interest in in history is really just a, a cloak screen to satisfy to uh, justify it to your wife <laughs> your purchases so you can this is really just you know i'm engaging in all of this just so that i can justify the next expenditure on a new pinball machine it's it's research material jeff right <laughs> yeah exactly but i bet you of 10 to 1 she's seen through that <laughs> Well, she is an extraordinarily smart person, so yeah. uh, naturally she sees right through any of my sales pitches, but she's she just, also a very understanding person, so she uh, is supportive anyway. <laughs> well, you know, pinball isn't like, you know, hanging out at the bar, drinking beer with the boys and stuff, and so, right. you right. know, something safe to that. I think there's something, you know, I don't know, it's, it's uh you know, my wife frequently, I've heard her say to, to friends, you know, female friends, uh, whatnot, they never grow up. And, uh, <laughs> and then there's a, a, an acknowledgement among, you know, the two or three women there <laughs> that no, they never do. And, uh, in some <laughs> sense to the detriment of society and the world, but maybe not, I don't know. There's <laughs> at least, you I, know, I, it keeps stuff like this alive. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a yin and yang to all that. The, the, smarter more competent women in all of our lives you know it's it's where i'm grateful i have my wife to keep me grounded and then she will also say you know I, i'm so thankful you're here to keep a bit of levity in my life because otherwise things would be so serious you know <laughs> yeah yeah I, I you know i think you're right but i, I, t I yeah i'm completely i'm completely i'd be a lost kite in the wind without my wife that's for sure right. Yeah, you know, she's the one with the brains and the wherewithal. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so so let's uh, let's get back to what we were talking about here. So you've get you're fascinated with pinball and you're doing all this research. So tell me about the magazine and what because I haven't seen the magazine. So what you know if I'm picking up this magazine and holding it, what is in it um, that makes me a non pinball person want to buy it? Or look, uh, flip through it. And when you say sure. magazine, does that mean periodical or is it just like one, a one-off? Okay. These are all fine questions and I'll try to answer all of them. So, <laughs> uh, probably the shortest answer to one of your questions, which was, is this a periodical? Is it just a single issue? Uh, this is a four issue limited series. The first issue is out. We're working on the second. We were projecting the issues to come out every other year, but 2020 put a big uh, monkey wrench in the in the gears of that happening. So uh, we are still working on issue two and we're not projecting a release date. But once I finish up with this comic I'm working on right now, uh, Nick and I are going to be back into it in a big way. And uh, we are committed to the four issues of the series. So um, what would you see if you picked up one of these? Well, it's a five and a half by eight and a half, you know, like a half letter sheet um, periodical. And I call it an illustrated magazine because I don't know what else to call it. I'd say about 20% of the pages, it's 64 pages long, about 20% of the pages are full-blown comics. You know, we have a, a four-page introduction, which is entirely in comic book form. We have uh, a section of the Wayne Nyans interview. That's the most prolific mm -hmm. pinball designer I told you about mm -hmm. that retells a story of his entirely in comic book form. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and uh, but there's also heavily illustrated prose all the way throughout. So, uh, you know, we've got 
let's see, that interview with Wayne Nyans, which uh, takes up about half of the issue. And then we also have a couple of game reviews. So Nick took on a pinball game review, which was one of Wayne's games from the 1950s and walks you through the rule sets, the artwork, the design, etc. And then I wrote a game review about an electromechanical arcade game. So electromechanical means there's not going to be a television screen on it like you think of an arcade game. So the arcade game that I did was called Space Pilot, and it's essentially a flight simulator game. So mm-hmm. this came out, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it was 1968, shortly before the moon landing. And so Space Fever was you know, running high. And uh, it's about a little spaceship where you're trying to move around the moon you've landed on the moon and you're circling this central rocket ship and with a physical ship with physical propellers that physically propels it up and down and back and forth you are trying to clip the sides of these little metal trees i guess there are metal trees on the moon who who knew (laughs) and so when you clip the sides of these things it gives you a point and also rotates those trees to put a different target in front of you so you can't just sit there banging on the same target uh it was it's an incredible game and i i know a collector friend who has one so it was easy for me to go over there and really get a good knowledge of this game um so there's a couple game reviews in there and it's followed up with a tech segment uh basically teaching you electromechanical technology so that if you get one of these games you can start to understand it and know how to fix it There's also a product review. Uh, I reviewed the Musée Mechaniques DVD documentary of the Edward Zielinski collection. So the Musée Mechanique exists still today on Fisherman's Mm -hmm. Wharf in San Francisco. I have never been. I very much want to go. And I feel like I should have already been having lived in California for, you know, the majority of my life. Mm -hmm. And... um, But I haven't been. So I ordered this DVD documentary that they sell. um, And that was, uh, you know, its own level of awe and fascination. So I I wrote about that. And then in the back, we even have paper craft models of the games that we review. So if you're unable to find one of these games that we review, we've got your back in the form of a 7% scale model of those (laughs) games that you can build. Really? Wow. And because because I am a longtime comics reader, mm-hmm. I really enjoy letters columns. So we mm-hmm. even have a letters column in the back of the book as well. So it's jam packed full of material, full color illustrations on every single page. Uh, we just poured a ton of time and effort and research and fun into this book that I'm so proud of. It's it sounds wonderful and uh, and a, a tribute in a lot of ways, you know, to the illustrated magazine that's come and gone uh, in my lifetime anyway. Um, and, you know, the, there's there's this something there's just this beautiful thing, of, this quality about it. And there's two things that strike me, actually, the, the object quality of a magazine and the object quality of a pinball machine or game versus digital you know uh video games and things of that nature and uh there's there's the world on the screen and and this in a sense both in its its um, form as a magazine you know and also what it's celebrating 
brings us back to the tactility of the three-dimensional, the real world. And I like that about both things. But the magazine sounds wonderful. And uh, and how have sales been? Sales have been amazing, actually. Uh, so Nick and I, as two working dads, put together the biggest promotional tour we could possibly muster <laughs> at the time. This was in 2019. We released it in March of that year. And we hit 10 different states and I think 17 different stops over the course of 2019 promoting the book. And we were like two months into the tour when we were selling out of our book. You know, We printed an 1100 copy print run of the book and we're both like counting our books as we're going through the year and we're like we're not going to make it through this tour wow. so we went to a second print run uh thankfully there is a printer that is literally 10 minutes from my house they printed the second edition and they're also printing my upcoming book a hunter's tale which i mentioned earlier in this episode um and they do an immaculate job of printing i'm just over the moon about my relationship with them and their quality of product. So um, anyway, BRD Printing is their name, brdprinting.com. Yep. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we printed another thousand copies. So there are 2,100 copies of Coinop Carnival number one in the world right now. And uh, we still have copies available right now. We made sure to print some extras so we have some to sell even after the tour. And then, of course, to take us through uh, subsequent issue printings. Uh, you know, if somebody picks up number two, we're guessing they're going to want number one as well. So, uh, yeah, they where, still where exist they, in the world. Yeah. Where can they get uh, where can people who are listening now and interested get Coin Up Carnival? Where can they uh, pick we try to make it easy for you. Just go to coinopcarnival.com, C-O-I-N, coin, op is O-P, like operated. So coinopcarnival.com. Okay. I'm going to do that right now and go see what's, what comes up. And uh, Fantastic. That's kind of cool. Oh, there it is. Looks great. <laughs> uh, and there's designer interview, intro comic. Very cool. So if folks go to this website, they are going to not only it's a very colorful, beautiful, friendly website and uh, with a great graphic on the top and some a, a wonderful window that shows you some 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 of the work that's inside, which looks just so beautiful and lovingly done. And uh, wow, this is great. What a wonderful, wonderful project. And I, I wish you success with the second, third and fourth issues, too. I, I mean, that's terrific. What, and what an arcane sort of you know, uh, a piece of ephemera or world history or whatever uh, to explore. And yet I'm sure there is some, you know, huge as there are, as there is for most of, you know, the kind of, um, uh, I guess, what would we call them? Neglected corners of pop culture. Um, there's, there's a, a fan base for all of these things. And I'm sure that there's a world of of uh, pinball lovers just like yourselves who you've been introduced to through through this magazine it's true and you know you talk about uh never having met a pinball enthusiast before and that's one of the great <laughs> things about the internet is that whatever niche interest you are into that fandom exists somewhere online <laughs> and for all of its foibles and flaws the internet is also a great community builder i think it is really a lot about what you make of it and i have 
develop some amazing friendships online because of shared interests in a hobby. I mean, Nick Baldridge, for example, my co-writer, one of my very best friends, um, you know, I, I met him um, because of message boards and podcasts and this shared interest. And now like pre-pandemic time anyway, since we met, our families have been vacationing together every <laughs> summer since we met. Wow. And uh, so anyway, I, I I don't have a wholly negative in, uh, feeling about the internet. <laughs> I have a lot of positive feelings about sure. it too. Uh, there are of course uh, areas of it to be wary of, but um, yeah, I, I really like the fact that it's a big connection point for people who have interests that are not mainstream, that you can't just walk down the street and find somebody interested in pinball or comics or old handheld video games or whatever it is that you're into. You know, those are just some of my interests. Yeah. And, and I think that's, a. I mean, obviously that's one of the great things about, you know, the connection that's available via, via the internet and, and our world there. But, um, uh, and, you know, everything comes with its caveats. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but this is, uh, fascinating. Have you encountered those kinds of, uh, fans of pinball lore who, who have written you and said, I'm afraid you got this wrong there. This is da 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 and correct you on this or that little piece of information. Because you I know, know there are those kinds of people in, you know, in comic books, there's all these, there's one guy who knows a little bit more about, you know, what pencil Steve Ditko was holding in 1961, <laughs> you know, versus another guy who says, wait a minute, you know, he's holding a Windsor seven brush and, you know, no, nah, oh, I don't think so. Uh, you know, I mean, so have you encountered those kinds of folks? You know, not yet, because I think we work so gosh darn hard to try to get it right before it goes to publication. Nick and I are both sticklers for detail. And one of the most uh, memorable responses I got was from an old timer who came up to me and he pointed at this um, diagrammatic explosion. You can probably see it if you go to the shop page on coinopcarnival.com if you still have it pulled up. And if you filter through a few of those preview pages, you'll see this um, uh, relay that is exploded into its different parts. And that drawing broke my brain and put it back together again, because I needed to understand this thing from the inside out and understand how everything came together. And this old timer came to me when it was released at the Texas pinball festival in 2019. This is the the largest pinball show in North America. And he walked up after reading it overnight and came to me and said, I wish that this document existed when I was first learning electromechanical games. This would have been so educational to have. Like as it stood, you know, he had some schematics and some documents, but nothing that outlined things quite that clearly, according to him. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was just such a huge compliment because Oh, I cannot even tell you the amount of time I I spent on that drawing, researching it, showing it to Nick, going back and forth, having, you know, disagreements about what there was and then coming to an agreement about what it actually is. And uh, yeah, so much time was poured into it. So um, are we quite the contrary? About, I've, uh, I'm sorry, go quite the contrary. What? Uh, I was going to say quite the contrary. I've actually had people come up and 
complement our attention to detail and accuracy. Oh, that's great. So are we talking about the drawing then on page 49 of the book? Is that, or, or what drawing are we talking about? I'm going through the shop now and I'm looking at the pages that are available to see. And um, there are uh, Space Pilot and then there's EM Tech Explained. And then there's a drawing of the interior workings plastic tubes soldier point, all kinds of different things um do you have is that the drawing you're talking about you're talking about something else i am forwarding my way through here yes you're right page 49 yep page 49 okay yeah. Great. yeah that is a pretty cool drawing i have to say now this is this ties into something else that you do which i was fascinated to find out about um not only are you, are you interested in the inner workings of pinball machines <laughs> and the graphics that go with them because they're wonderful i just love that uh, that's one of the things i loved about pinball machines uh the look of them the graphics the illustrations which you know like comic book illustration um oftentimes borders on the really cheesy um borders on some you know it's really garish in a lot of ways sometimes and just over the top and and glorious because of it you know um same thing with you know great comic book illustration or tops greeting you know those tops cards with back in the day in the early 60s those wonderful uh i can't remember what they were called but the garbage pail kids and all that kind of stuff uh there's some great stuff or sci-fi retro uh those kinds of great advertisements and images from the 40s 50s 60s the same thing exists in in pinball but also you're also a guy who designs watches that's true <laughs> blows my mind but it makes perfect sense uh you know when you look at these wonderful illustrations of pinball machines you've done so well, how did you. that you know is that a lifelong interest also no, that's a relatively recent interest. And, uh, you know, I think we were all trying to make our way through the pandemic and figure out how to navigate it in our own way. And one of the ways that I kind of got through that those first several months was taking another interest in another hobby, which is, you know, something I need like a hole in the head. But I started getting really interested in watch collecting. And uh, people think, well, why in the world would that happen? It seems like such a different thing for you to be interested in. But, you know, I really see a lot of parallels to pinball with watch collecting because it's mechanical. There's a physical element to it, but at the same time, it's also very artistic. You know, on pinball machines, you have the back glass and the play field, which are like some of the biggest canvases you can imagine. But on the watch, you have it at a very small scale, but also a lot of artistic choices are happening on that watch dial. And there's just an infinite number of ways that you can explore that. Um, so in my exploration of watches, I ran across this company in London called Mr. Jones Watches, and they make artist-designed watches. And I was just absolutely pining over what they were doing. Um, I would go back to their website for literally months, and eventually I just caved and sent an email to the company introducing myself and saying, hey, this is who I am. Uh, here's my website. I'd love to work with you to make a long story short. And about 24 hours later, the company owner wrote me back and said, 
I looked at your portfolio. It looks amazing. We'd love to work with you too. Let's talk about what we can do. So uh, my first watch was called Step Right Up. It's a celebration of the carnival shooting gallery, you know, the old air rifles and the hours and the minutes are denoted by the rotating targets and the ducks that go by. And then my second watch design that I did is called Ricochet, which just came out in August of this year, um, 2021. Mm -hmm. And that depicts uh, a few robots playing pinball. And so the score reels in the back glass of the pinball machine tell the time uh, for that watch. I love that. When I stumbled upon this, uh, I, I was just like entranced. I, you know, um, I'm not a watch collector, never will be, but but I, I've always enjoyed watches. You know, there's this thing about, there's just something about them. I don't know what it is. You know, I, whether it's the, the tangibility of watching time go by. I, you know, there's just something about them, and there's something about their, the, the again, it's the object itself, which has always been of interest to me, and. Um, and so when I came across this, I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is great. I just <laughs> I love particularly the new one. It's so colorful and and so much fun. Uh, these robots, of course, playing pinball, which is what you can't beat that for. And it, <laughs> what I love about what you're doing uh, is that you're taking your personal interests and turning them into, you know, your into great comics or works of art i mean what's better than taking things that you love and making something something else out of them transforming them in some way making them your own and uh this it's a terrific i think very healthy thing to do as opposed to putting negativity into the world you're putting something very positive i think into the world uh through that love and there's uh you know for folks who aren't familiar with ryan's work there's a great love of color uh color just oozes from what you're doing and and i love your color sense i think it's terrific well thank you that that means a lot to me jeff especially coming from a fellow artist i appreciate that yeah wonderful stuff and if you you go to ryan's uh ryan's website elephanteater.com and you go to about and you slide down and you look for uh the information on the new watch you're going to be able to see it in action which is even <laughs> cooler you know you can watch time go by in this little you know, <laughs> click a link of it and I, as a kid i would just i would die for this watch it's just incredible so tell me how much does this watch go for um i think it's sold for 325 us uh it's a london-based company so most of them are sold in in pounds i think it was 250 for the pounds and 325 for the us dollar and it was made in a limited run of 100 oh. and um uh, my first watch with them, Step Right Up, uh, broke their company sellout record. Uh, <laughs> the, it sold out in two hours. Hey. And then the subsequent watch that I made for them, Ricochet, broke that record and sold out in 30 minutes. <laughs> so uh, we are currently working on a reissue of Ricochet, okay. uh, the robots and pinball watch. And that's going to be out sometime in the early part of uh, 2022. We don't have a release date yet, but they have confirmed that it will be re-released. Mm -hmm. That's great. Wonderful. Congratulations. And so do you get, uh, is it contractual? Do you get like a percentage of the sales or how does that work? Yeah. So the way Mr. Jones watches works is for that initial limited 100 watch run, they pay you 
X amount of money for the design. It's just mm-hmm. a flat fee. Right. But if there's enough interest and they reissue it into their permanent collection, then you start getting a percentage of the watches sold. Very cool. That's yeah. really great. Very great. Yeah. Uh, so I like that a lot. So uh, we've come quite far afield from our <laughs> beginning. Let's talk about um, before we forget. Let's let's talk a little bit more about the Kickstarter. Um, the Kickstarter goes up in January. Um, it's a hunterstale.com. And it's a, now the this, the book itself is relatively small in size, right? Um, again, you like uh, Coin Up Carnival. You do you you like this smaller scale to work at? Yeah. So I was uh, I read lots of comics like you, <laughs> and I I picked up this book. Uh, I was reading Craig Thompson's recent books, um, Ginseng Roots, and it came with a little mini comic that was called Traditions, and it's by a, a Hmong American artist named Duachaka Her. And this book was four and a quarter, uh, four and an eighth inch by five and a quarter inches tall, the exact size that I'm making my book because of this book. So I was reading through this and I just loved this tiny, intimate experience of reading this smaller book. And I, I just said to myself, I want to make something like this. And at the same time, I was reading through my grandfather's poetry again and uh, thinking, man, you know, the, it's sort of echoing the size of like poetry chat books, which are typically smaller in size. Mm-hmm. And it all just kind of fell together. Um, and now we have a hunter's tale being kickstarted right now. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the initial origins and inspiration for that. Um, but I literally measured that book <laughs> four mm-hmm. and an eighth by five and a quarter because I wanted that feeling, that experience. So, um, so yeah, it's very much, uh, an homage to that. You know, I think there's something in other cartoonists, I think will relate to this or cartoonists who've, who've worked in other mediums will probably relate to this. And there's something about scale, you know, when you're working as an artist in say on a painting or, or a collage or a physical object and, um, you know, so, so for example if you've if you've just been born into comic books and just done comic books your whole life then 10 by 15 is something that's natural to you you know that verticality mm-hmm. right uh and it's kind of a, but i've always found it a kind of squinchy you know size it's really it's for the benefit of the printer and economic printing as opposed to the artist you know and uh and, and i've always thought that when jack kirby and and all of those great uh, Silver Age artists had to go from one and a half times up this very, very large scale to, you know, or what was it? Was it two times up, then down to one and a half? So I can't remember. But anyway, they worked at a huge scale before they went to 11 by 17 board and a 10 by 15 live area. Mm-hmm. And the dis- the difference between Kirby's work and whether it's Gene Colan's work or a whole pile of other artists, when you look at their work pre-shrinkage, which is like up until 1967, um, you look at that work, printed work, it's so much, got so much more breadth and, and so much more room in it. So, so much more oxygen in it than, than it does after the fact. And, uh, I've always felt it had an impact on Kirby's drawing, you know, in particular, you kind of see a change in his drawing post 1967 and into the seventies. And I don't think it's just due to his, 
age and and some kind of eye problem, as some people have said. I also think it's due to the fact that he was used to using his arm in his drawing in a mm. in a more gestural way, and yeah. he was constrained by the smaller size. Well, anyway, all of that is to say, suggest that scale is a very personal thing in art making, and and we all you know we all come in different shapes and sizes as artists. We're you know small and big and and you know uh, all kinds of different sizes, and our our natural inclination to a certain scale is not necessarily the scale that the printer offers us. And, and we have a tendency, you know, to accommodate the printer. We have to accommodate the printer because we're working in a medium of printing, but at the same time, finding that place where you feel comfortable as a cartoonist with the scale you're working is so uh, it's something that's overlooked but it's so nice when you can find it because it allows allows for a kind of natural you know give and take in the in the graphics that may be lost otherwise you know um I accommodate 10 by 15 because that's what I've got to do in terms of what I'm doing at the moment. But if I'm doing something else, it's really, it's nice to be able to work at a scale that feels natural and, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think so many artists feel like there is a standard size that they have to work in. And that's so untrue. I mean, you can call up a printer and ask them to quote you any old size of any old book that you want in terms of number of pages, size of the pages, type of ink that you're using, anything. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the first things I do before starting a project mm -hmm. just to make sure, hey, can this be done? Hey, mm -hmm. how, is this going to break the budget, this idea that I have? Um, so I, I would encourage artists and comic book artists to think about format and not think that a printer has to only print this size or that printers can only print quote unquote comic books. I, I, I've, I've heard this term like we're a comic book printer. No, mm. you, you print anything and any printer can print a comic book so long as you give them files that have comics on it. <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> so uh, it's just a matter of understanding the terminology, whether you're printing, you know, one over one or four over one or four over four, you know, if you're printing full color or black and white, uh, you know, what size are your pages going to be? And something that I try to instill in my students all the time is that even if you don't know the answer, don't be afraid to ask because no one completely understands printing. And so they are used to walking people through. Well, you cannot have a 22-page book because we need pages in, uh, divisible by four. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, when they fold, you know, something's going to fall out if it's, you know, not four pages. Right. Or, you know, we can do full color inside, but it's going to be a lot more money. Or we can do a duotone for less money than we can do a single color on a fancy piece of paper or any number of things. So, I actually take my comic students on a tour of a couple of different printing facilities here in Lansing, Michigan, just to, well, for multiple reasons. One, to introduce them to the fact that they're here. Two, to get them familiarized with what sort of resources are available to them. But also so they can see, look, printers are people too. And they will <laughs> answer your questions and be happy to do so. So uh, I think that they walk away feeling a lot more empowered after we visit those print shops. You know, it's kind of like a, 
like a Mr. Rogers tour, you know, where we go on a, a factory tour and we see the books getting made. But then, you know, we ask a bunch of questions, too. And I think that that helps them moving forward in their careers. Oh, sure, sure. Hey, so uh, absolutely. And I think empowering the students is is a great phrase and is a great uh, goal, you know, as, a, as an educator. Um, and certainly walking, because the I think for a lot particularly, well, you know, the printing process is a mystery, you know, to, to people mm-hmm. who are not there in the print shop. And so... Yeah. You know, particularly the first time you approach a printer, you have no idea what to expect or what to ask. And I think that that's a really essential part of, you know, going through of producing comics because comics, you know, part of the I mean, comics exist as single objects, sure, as single pages. But, you know, ideally they're mass produced and and our, our history of comics that as we understand them or engage them has to do with with mass production. You know, the, their existence in the newspaper and then in in comic books, it always coincides with that kind of printing technology. So uh, it's part of the process and it's really important for for cartoonists and, and writers who, who are making comics to find out what what it's all about and how you talk to a printer it's really important um yeah completely and i know there's going to be naysayers who will say oh but web comics and you can publish online and that's all true but Mm -hmm. it's much harder to monetize web comics and on top of that i polled my students my university students not long ago and asked them how do you guys intake your comics media. Do you read them on a screen? Do you read them on a tablet? Do you read them on uh, dead tree versions, you know, actual physical books? Like what do you, how do you intake comics? And the majority, vast, vast, vast majority, almost unanimously, as a matter of fact, raise their hand saying they read physical comic books. And I was really surprised to see that. But they mm-hmm. said, you know, we're just on a screen so much that the last thing I want to do when I'm trying to relax is look at another screen. And so uh, there is still definitely a market for print comics. Yeah, it, it's it, well, this is interesting. You, you know, Dennis Kitchen was on uh, last time and Dennis was saying, you know, something that I think we've all said that the market for maybe floppy comics, uh, you know, the comic book, as it were, as, as we understand the term, not graphic novel, but comic book, meaning the floppies is kind of and the comic shop may be something that's seen better days, but. You know, the graphic novel, if you go into Barnes and Noble or other places or even, you know, just go scrolling on Amazon or whatnot or Kickstarter where, you know, you're going to find any month 20,000 different comics projects, all of them (laughs) for print, not for, you know, uh, not not to launch web comics, but for print comics. I mean, there's a huge audience for this stuff. You know, 20,000 different projects every month are on Kickstarter that are being funded by you know millions of people around the world and comics bring in a huge amount of kickstarter money i mean i don't remember what they what's on the front page now but it's like you know the millions of dollars are are being spent on kickstarter comics and people are hungry for those and uh, you know so the market is it's interesting the market is changing but yeah the the desire for a printed object remains and exists and i i I don't know i'm i just thought it was because of my age but, you know, I love 
print comics. I mean, that's, I mean, I look at comics every day online. I, I think we all do, right? You know, scrolling through Instagram or whatnot, there they are. And um, easy to read and catch up on. But, you know, when it comes to a story or something like that, I, I don't want to read online, you know, comics online. I want to flip a page. And the thing about flipping a page and having a page in your hand, and this kind of goes into, you know, that idea of, of comics as an encapsulation of time. Comics, a comics page is an encapsulation of time. This idea that that you have past, present, future all there in your hand in a comics page and you can see all at once and then travel through one at a time sequentially or not. You know, there's this and you don't really I don't think even when you hold it a screen in your hand that you really get the same experience of time. Yeah, especially. As you, uh, of course, I mean, you're speaking to the choir, of course, <laughs> but I, I think especially when you start talking about things like Webtoons, where it's designed for a vertical scroll yeah. and you can only see a panel at a time and then scroll and see the next panel, uh, that same experience is not there. That same interest in page design is not there. Um, you know, I've had students who have taken their comics from my class, which are designed for a printed page, and then cut them up in Photoshop so that they are designed for a physical scroll. And, you know, that's a lot of work, but I, I always, you know, this is probably the old man in me too. I cringe a little bit when I see them rip their page design apart and yes, there's benefits like getting your work in front of a new audience. Um, I just haven't gone that route yet. I've seen how much work it is to reformat everything like that. And I would rather put my, uh, you know, limited time behind creating new books than uh, cutting up existing ones, to be yeah. honest with you. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Kickstarter, too. I wanted to bounce off of your thoughts there real quick. Um, I had Oriana Leckert, who is the comics and publishing. Oh, I'm going to get her title wrong. Um, you know, director of outreach or something for Kickstarter. And uh, she visited my class this semester and she was citing some numbers for comic book Kickstarter specifically, uh, the success rate for which was hovering around the 50% mark for a very long time, little above, little below, but, you know, right around there. And in 2020, it skyrocketed into the 70s of percent wow. of su- successful projects. And it, it, 2021 isn't even over uh, when she was there and you and I are talking right now. But she said 2021 is even tracking higher than that. So the success rate for comics projects on Kickstarter is at an all-time high wow. right now. And wow. I think it's because of the community that's been built up around it. You look at comic book Kickstarters and you can see the person's profile, you know, mm-hmm. one launched, 80 backed or yeah, two yeah, launched yeah. and a hundred backed. Like these people that are putting out comics are not just trying to make a quick buck. They are part of a community and you go to any other place in Kickstarter and it's, it's very different. Like go to a tech segment and there's nothing wrong with kickstarting tech on, uh, you know, crowdfunding platforms. Sure. But you'll see one project created, zero back. So they're just coming here to launch their product and not be a part of a community. So I'm really proud 
to be a part of the Kickstarter comics community. You know, I I launched my son's first comic book in March of 2021 uh, <laughs> to great success. And, you know, I have a couple of badges on my profile. Like, uh, I am not only a super backer, I've backed a bunch of projects, but I'm also a backer favorite for people who were very happy with uh, the way my projects have run in the past. So all that to say, uh, I think Kickstarter is like the new comics revolution. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, over the course of the pandemic, I have not entered a comic book store in, gosh, almost two years now. Uh, I still purchase my books from a local store and have them shipped to me. But all that to say, I'm not in the store getting in front of new product that I don't know about. But Kickstarter has provided that. Uh, mm -hmm. process for me. So, you know, I'll cruise through Kickstarter. And now that I'm a part of the community, I have things arriving in my email almost every day about friends backing projects or new projects happening. And there's so much exciting, diverse material happening. It's this great democratization of the comics industry happening on Kickstarter right now. And I'm just, I'm so excited to be there too. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and you've run a number of successful Kickstarter campaigns. How many have you run now? Uh, so I did my first crowdfunding campaign in 2013 wow. for uh, my my book, Autobiographical Conversations. It was a 96-page book. And uh, I got, I think, a little over 170 people backing that campaign at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I feel like that was back in the infancy of crowdfunding. <laughs> sure, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and then I did my son's uh, book in March 2021 and, mm -hmm. um, you know, doubled that number. I think it was well over 300, 330, 330 something backers. And, you know, we printed we printed 450 copies of my seven year old son's first comic book Amazing. because of Kickstarter. Like that is that just blows my mind. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, we worked very hard to get all those rewards out to people in a very timely manner. And uh, we're really happy with how that campaign went. And so this is going to be the third campaign that I've run. But I've also coached a number of students of mine through oh, Kickstarters. Fantastic. So, uh, you know, I teach uh, fundamentals of comics class and I also teach an advanced comics class. And in the fundamentals class, the students create several short stories over the course of the semester and by semester's end, they compile them into their own books. This is not a, a class-wide anthology. Each student has their own comic book at the end of the semester. And uh, in the before times, we would take the books to a local shop where the students would sign and sell their work that they made over oh. the course of the semester. Uh, so the advanced comic students would typically have an in-store signing tour where they went to typically about three stores uh, across the state of Michigan. Uh, but since pandemic times, we've sort of transitioned to more online events. And one of the things that I offer my advanced students is uh, the ability to run a Kickstarter campaign for their comic that they make through my class. And if they choose to do that, then I have an entire calendar of weekly check-ins that I, you know, I check in with them every every week to see that they've completed these specific tasks in order to build up to 
a Kickstarter campaign on a particular date, which is on finals week of the semester. So um, I've coached a couple students through that, and they've been very successful. In fact, uh, the student who did it last year, they had a $500 goal for their comic and blew that out of the water to the tune of over $2,500 for their comic that they made in my class. You know, that's unthinkable to me if I rewind almost 20 years to when I first started making comics and I was you know, going from shop to shop, hoping that somebody would carry them on consignment, you know, and here they are with $2,500 in their pocket for their first comic book. It just absolutely blows me away. And I think it's so empowering to them too, because I think so many art classes, money is like a four letter word. You know, they Mm -hmm. don't talk about how you make a living at art. Here's how you do art, but how do you make a living at it? Well, this is empowering them to continue doing this for a living. Wow. I got to take your class. <laughs> I'd love to have you in there. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, man, uh, because, you know, uh, I, I just ran a Kickstarter and it was nowhere near as successful as your students. I mean, I, I, I did OK, but, you know, very modest. And uh, I'd like to see that grow. But uh, yeah. Yeah. anyway, what, if you got any pointers, send them my way. <laughs> I, I'd be happy to chat Kickstarter with you. Um, but I you know, go ahead. No, go for it. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, but you know, I think your, your your assessment of what Kickstarter means in terms of the comics community, I think, is so so apropos, so so right on. You know, because it it, it you know it, I'm late to the game here. Um, although I, I've known about Kickstarter for a long time, I just never had much confidence in my ability to do anything on it. And so, it, you know, I'm a late starter in that regard. But once you're on there and you sort of get over that fear um and you you know you go through i went through a failed one and then did one that okay succeeded on a modest scale um it's kind of okay you know now you're in there and you realize that the that the possibilities in terms of what's available what you can find what you know it's so different than than what is available in the local comic shop and and you know God love the local comic shop um, because I do, but at the same time, it's a very, for the most part, when you get outside of the major cities, for the most part, what's available in a lot of comic shops is, you know, the big two and that's, and maybe, you know, some dark horse and some, if you're lucky, some Fanta, but, you know, otherwise it's pretty limited and it's, you know, it's just sad, you know, you, when you go to Kickstarter, the potentiality, the, the, so the, voices are so diverse and there's so much there that you can look into and you can find again the niche that suits you you know whatever your tastes are or expand your taste you know by exploring things that you that just sort of pique your interest that might you might never have seen otherwise um there's just this wide wide world of comics being produced and kickstarters making it possible so you know one of the things that that um I wanted to touch on briefly anyway, was your experience as a teacher and the, the, cause how many tenured, you know, cartoonists are there in the world, you know, <laughs> uh, at universities, um, there's me and there's you, and then maybe there's a few others, but th- in my case, you know, I got in through the back door. I came, I got tenured as a painter and a mixed media artist. Comics was something I started to do when they brought in younger faculty who were, who were pointed towards teaching painting. And I was sort of left 
to sort of decide what to do on my own and uh, and invented this because that was my interest. But, you know, were you literally hired as a comics guy? Well, before we get too far into it, I want to make a slight distinction. I am not a tenured professor. I am a fixed-term professor, uh, but I have what they call at Michigan State University designation B status, which is sort of like tenure light for fixed-term faculty. Sure. Uh, I've also been here for, you know, what, a dozen years now or so and formed a comic art and graphic novel minor and, you know, the director of the MSU Comics Forum and a number of other things around campus. Anyway, um, I I didn't want to take the credit of being tenured faculty when I am not. So (laughs) with that out of the way... uh, 12 years, you know, I mean, in my, I've been a chair and I've done all those kinds of things. 12 years, there's some kind of distinction that should be made there and some kind of equity that's necessary. But let's leave that aside for the union to discuss. And Right. <laughs> you know, but, so um, I think I mentioned a little earlier that I am a California boy born and raised and lived until 2008 mm-hmm. when my wife Uh, My then girlfriend, now wife, got a tenure track position at Michigan Mm -hmm. State University. Um, And so we had only been dating for a few months, three or four months at the time. And that was sort of a quick turning point to figure out, hey, are we going to move across the country together? And um, so we took a trip out to Michigan and I knew that MSU had the largest public collection of comic books in the world. So I made sure to make a stop at the special collections library here and see if there was a comic book store in town. And, and there was, and so I said, let's, let's make this happen. Let's do this. And so she tried to get a partner hire for me while she was at it. And, uh, that happened sort of, (laughs) they basically said, well, are you married? And she said, well, no, we're not. Um, and they said, well, we can't give him a full-time position. So we'll give him one class for one semester and that's it. (laughs) So that was the sweet deal I had to move across the country (laughs) outside of the great girl I was with, of course. But, um, so we, we said, okay. And we came out here and I had taught all manner of classes from, you know, uh, Photoshop and different desktop publishing programs and even some web design uh, classes at the community college level and adult education level. But um, I had never taught a comics class, but I was really, really close to getting one on the books right before I left to California. In fact, I was going to teach it that following semester. We'd already gone through the course curriculum and planning and all of that. So when I came to Michigan, I had all that ready and I went into the chair's office and he asked me what I wanted to teach. And I basically put a single piece of paper in front of him. And I said, this is the one class that I want to teach. And that was the comics class. And he said, "Okay, you go do that. So for the first several years, they offered it under a special topics class. Mm -hmm. And when I taught it that first semester, it over-enrolled, and it's been offered every semester since I taught it in 2009. So that has since grown into a minor course of study. 
Uh, I've also started the uh, MSU Comic Art and Graphic Novel podcast. I'm also the director of the MSU Comics Forum and uh, a number of other comics things around campus. But, you know, that's probably enough of (laughs) an introduction for me. Um, You invented it, really, at, at MSU. I taught the very first comics class that was ever taught at MSU. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they, they, if they're smart, they'll, they, they'll know, they'll, they'll give you tenure. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, they, that's, that's pretty impressive, you know, to have gone from one class as an adjunct to uh, a minor. So how many classes and, and then, you know, becoming literally kind of the founding father of this, you know, this program that is, has got mul- a multi-pronged kind of uh, attack, really. Um, there are so many different attributes of it. So let me ask you about the the first comics class. Now, was it open just to art students or was it open to all students from across the university? It is an art class, but I have always been very staunchly interested in having multiple disciplines in my comics class. I have had undergrads. I've had grad students in my classes. I've had art students, English students, music Mm -hmm. students, uh, students from the sciences. Uh, I welcome anybody and everybody into my comics classes. So being able to draw is not really a prerequisite. Uh, There there is a uh, loosey-goosey prerequisite for a drawing class, but I have waived it uh, quite a number of times. Um, And really, I, I don't have put too much stock in whether or not somebody can draw. If they're interested in taking the class, I want them to take a class because the very first day of class, I show a bunch of examples of people who have parlayed their inability to draw into <laughs> successful careers in comics. Yeah. And uh, there's a number of ways that you can do that from, you know, Matt Fazell has this long-running stick figure comic called The Amazing Cynical Man to mm-hmm. Brian Michael Bendis, who is a writer, but he started out his career basically tracing photographs to make comics and eventually, you know, rose in the ranks to uh, be the the writer we know uh, today. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of different instances of that happening. So I, I I make sure to tell people that on the first day because I know that for many folks, their big insecurity is, what if I can't draw? And here's a bunch of people who cannot draw, who are making a living at comics right now. Yes, absolutely. That's great. Um, so how many classes are in the minor? So the minor is composed of five classes, and it's an interdisciplinary minor between the art and English department at MSU. Mm -hmm. So there is the fundamentals of comics class. That's a studio class. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's the advanced comic studio class. We also have a drawing class, which is the prereq to those two, Mm -hmm. and an English course in comics literature. So those are the four core classes and Mm. the fifth class that you take you can choose from a track of classes so that you can tailor your minor toward a more art or more literature focused experience that's great that's fantastic uh i've often commented on the um the, the the seeming lack of interest of so many art departments on in comics i think it might be changing now but the for for the longest time at the university level it was it's been english departments that have been fostering you know comic studies 
and and comics programs. And it's been kind of surprising um, the lateness of art departments to the to the um, to the game, as it were. Uh, of course, art schools have always been. You know, I mean, whether we're talking about SVA, we're talking about Savannah, or wherever we're talking about, um, art schools have always been in the forefront of that. But liberal arts colleges, a little slower in that regard in picking up, you know, uh, this growing interest among college students for, um, you know, art and comic studies, you know. Uh, yeah, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to agree with you. It's true. And, you know, Michigan State University wouldn't have this program if I didn't shove that piece of paper in front of them and say, this is the one and only class I want to teach. But I'm not saying it's here because of me, because the entire time I've been here, I've been hanging my hat on something that a guy named Randy Scott has been building for about 50 years at this point. Randy Scott is the man behind the world's largest public collection of comic books that sits Mm -hmm. in the Michigan State University main library. So uh, he's been at this since the early 70s, creating this collection. And he's a very knowledgeable and very humble guy. And he will tell you that he did not start this collection, which is true on a technicality. It was started by a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning professor named Russell Nye, who wrote this book called The Unembarrassed Muse. And it talks about all manner of different, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, underground type of art, like comics and romance novels and pulps and things like that. Um, So there was a chapter on each of these. And so he had a bunch of each of those things when he was done writing this book and he had a big collection of comics in addition to kind of guilting some of his students into donating their collection <laughs> to the special collections library. <laughs> and that was the initial like six, seven, 8,000 comic book donation. And when that originally happened in the early seventies, MSU didn't really know what to do with it. You know, I think they would have thrown it in the trash normally, but you don't do that for a Pulitzer Prize winning professor. So they're like, okay, go shove it in the basement, put it in the special collections (laughs) library. And that's how it started. And Randy Scott has built the collection from that initial 6,000 comic book donation to over 350,000 entries. And I I show a pie chart of this on my first day of class, on my student's first day of class. And the donation from Russell Nye is this sliver of a pie chart. And Randy's life's work is practically the entire pie. So he will say he did not start that collection. And while that's technically true, he built this collection into what it is today. Mm -hmm. So all that to say, every step along the way I've been here, I've continuously been pointing to that saying, look, we have this world-class collection sitting in our main library. We -hmm. would be foolish not to capitalize on this and create these programs around it. And Mm -hmm. so that's how the minor was built. That's how the class was started. That's how the MSU Comics Forum came to be. That's how the MSU Comics Podcast came to be. It's always pointing back at that collection. And I just have such reverence and, (laughs) you know, it even like, gets me choked up thinking about Randy's work here um, uh, for his work that, you know, I was able to do the things I've been able to do so far because of him. Yeah, it's I mean, it's fantastic. And so 
are we talking we're talking about comics from all ends of the spectrum we're talking about underground comics we're talking about mainstream comics we're talking about european comics are they all were they all in one particular zone no we everything you listed and more there are comics there are periodicals about comics there are how to draw books there are manga there are european comics there are european periodicals about european comics there's european periodicals about (laughs) american comics there's uh, indian comics there's even comics from north korea in our collection oh my gosh yeah. As a matter of fact, I even snapped a few pictures of them when they came in because they came in just a few years back uh, and I couldn't believe that Randy got them. And I put them on my website. So if you remind me, I'll shoot you a link to that um, uh, post that I made about them. OK. Yeah. And so, you know, it reminds me, too, of um, the 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 work of uh, of Pinko Joe, of, of Chris Sperandio, who was on a couple of shows ago who, uh, you know, did this book called Fundamental Camarena, which is like, you know, rediscovering uh, a Mexican cartoonist who's little known in the United States. And and these Mexican comics that were very popular in Mexico, they're very tiny little, you know, like four by five books. But uh, he's quite interested in finding comics that are unknown here, you know, in this country and bringing them to uh to our attention um i think another one he was he was looking at finnish comics uh which which are quite rare and and uh, at least here you know we don't know much about that world but it's interesting so 300,000 comics we're talking like just it, it can't even, it's mind-boggling how how large that that collection must be what kind of physical space it takes up and then to think, you know, how do students access it? Do they they have access to the library? They can take out a comic at a time and sit there in the library and read it, uh, you know, with gloves on? Or, or how does that work? Yes, uh, because we have such a big collection, because so much of it is so valuable, you know, you don't want people checking out Wonder Woman number one or Walt Disney Comics and Stories number one and walking out of the library with it for obvious reasons. So we have a reading room. And when you uh, borrow a book, you sit down in the reading room. And just like you say, we ask that you uh, wear gloves. Randy is less. uh, Maybe I shouldn't say this. uh, I was going to say Randy's a little less strict about wearing gloves uh, than others, but um, you know he he Randy to his credit is all about the readability. He wants people to interact with these objects and not treat them like you know art objects, something that should be shelved away or encased in lucite. He wants these to be used. They're there for research. So I, I really appreciate that about him because he. Uh, you know, that's why he created this collection. But yes, as far as the um, facilities to hold all of this, we've got a huge room in the basement of the main library, but that cannot contain everything. So there are remote, I'm sorry, remote storage facilities to hold a bunch of this, which I've gone out and visited with Randy and recorded. I mean, it's like, you know, Indiana Jones walking into that warehouse and it's full of comics. It's, as you say, absolutely mind blowing. So I'm imagining you must have spent. I mean, it's so tempting for you as as a lover of comics to go and spend days, weeks, months uh, amidst this collection, just scouring for oh, what. No. 
No doubt. And when I was recording the MSU Comics podcast for a number of years, you know, I was interviewing all sorts of different artists, uh, just like you do. And before I would interview them, we have, of course, their whole body of work (laughs) and many times a lot of their early work, too. And so I can't count the number of times in those interviews where I would ask them a question about something that was really unknown or really early. And they'd say, how did you even know about that? Where did you even find out about this? And I'm like, we've got this pretty amazing collection here. You should come see it sometime. So, (laughs) but yeah, yeah, I I would hang out in there and pour over those artists work before I interviewed them. It was uh, uh, just an absolute blessing to be able to do that. Um, I mean, do you actually have Wonder Woman number one? Yes. And say, oh, my gosh, that's incredible. And, and you know, I'm imagining some of the other great, you know, uh, key issues of the history of of comic books. I can't imagine if you I'm not. OK, did you, action comics, number one. Uh, no, we don't have that. <laughs> Superman number one. There, there are a, a number of key issues that we do not have, uh, okay. because they're very difficult to come by. We do have Wonder Woman number one. We do have Walt Disney Comics and Stories number one. Uh, but there are a lot of the Golden Age that, uh, you know, command very high dollars that we do not have. Yeah, I was um, just wondering, um, FF number one. I believe. Uh, I don't want to speak out of turn. I'll, I'll need to look that up. <laughs> okay, I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, it's you know, I mean, it sounds it's fascinating. Even if you didn't, I mean, three hundred thousand comic books. It's kind of you could spend your life in there. Oh, and completely. Now, now, and between the pinballs and the library, your wife is never. I'm imagining she's home a lot alone, or either that <laughs> she's just at work on her own stuff, and uh, you know has to deal with that. But I mean, w- when do you come up for air? <laughs> uh so my my wife and i are both very driven individuals yeah. and we both appreciate that about each other but we we always come together every day every night and especially during the pandemic we see each other you know all day every day <laughs> uh, we, we've really had to to figure out a, a schedule to get our own work done but also help our young son through remote third grade learning oh, yeah. and uh so yeah we 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 definitely have plenty of time together and uh you know really enjoy our evenings together after we've come together for dinner and and after putting junior down and all that <laughs> i was just thinking that that you know in some ways you you have a very kind of three-dimensional you know uh life you know in the sense that it seems that your teaching is not like like an it's it's not a vehicle just to making a living it's it's you know an extension of your interest all around and your love of comics in general it seems like a natural outgrowth of what you do as a comics artist that that you would always be a teacher that that's somehow integral to the person that you are completely and totally yes um i used to run a graphic design business of my own. And I, at one point, tried to do that solely and was just not happy. And I've also done the same with teaching. I sort of cast myself into teaching and was doing that a whole bunch. And I I really value the balance between Mm -hmm. creating my own personal artwork and having 
interaction with people who are interested in this particular type of art. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they both feed me. And I feel like if the seesaw leans too heavily toward one side, I, I get a little antsy. Um, but so, yeah, I would completely and totally agree with that sentiment. Well, you know, I think both you and Michigan State are lucky to have found one another. And I think that's a great, you know, because obviously you brought a lot to that program. And uh, and it's great that you can make a living while doing that. But it, it does really seem like, you know, there is a, a kind of one hand washes the other thing going on here. And uh, and it worked out well. Now, you know, just got to make sure you get tenure. And uh, <laughs> if, you know, you need somebody to advocate for that for you, then I'm happy to do so. Uh, because it's it's really, they would be, I mean, remiss. And, and I think it would be a great loss, especially at the university where the greatest comic book collection exists. I mean, uh, for gosh sakes, you know, you got to have somebody like you on board. And uh, after all you've done. So, you know, here we are. Uh, it's almost been two hours. Hours. And um, mm -hmm. and about a half an hour ago, I said, let's talk a little bit more about the Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> and we got into something else. Well, the Kickstarter is, is again, hunterstale.com, and it starts in January. Um, I was wondering if you, you know, if you had the poem handy, if you wanted to read from it at all, um, to share a little bit of what your grandfather wrote. Oh, gosh, I do not have it handy, oh, okay. actually. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. I, I, I it's I, I can, I'm catching you unawares, but you know it was just something that struck me as maybe it would be something that people would be interested in hearing. I um, could I could run upstairs and grab it if you feel like doing some editing. <laughs> uh, if it's not too far, sure. You know, okay. uh, You know, just like a uh, a couple of stanzas or something, just to give us a taste of what it might might entail. You know, yeah. we can we can cut this out, and if you want to go grab it, that's great. Okay, give me uh, one minute here. Okay, sure. Sorry about that, Ryan. No problem. Hey, Jeff, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. So I've got the poem in front of me, and maybe I can take a second to catch my breath after <laughs> running up and down the stairs Thanks before I that. read it. Yeah, no problem. I, I, I have a file of Grandpa Clater's poems here, so it was easy to find. Oh, great. All right. So I'll, I'll read the first few lines of A Hunter's Tale. 
It says, one day I thought that I'd go hunting. It was a cold and frosty morn. I put on my orange blaze cap and gloves and coat and wrapped around my neck some orange blaze bunting. People call this thing around my neck a scarf, but my dog just called it arf, arf, arf. I took a pack upon my back and in the pack I took water, shells, a rope, a knife, and a sandwich for a snack. Then gallantly I took up my gun and went on my merry way. When I had walked a mile or two, or three or four, or maybe more, I saw an antlered deer beneath a tree. He did not move, just stood and looked at me. He had a splendid rack, and I thought how proud I'd be to have that rack tied to my pack upon my back. Uh, I'll probably stop there and yeah, <laughs> let people ponder about whether or not or, or what happens from that point. What happens next? <laughs> you know, I, I live... Um, I, just, I was just, uh, I, I got a little touched there. Sorry. Uh, I was just thinking about encounters I've had with, with deer, uh, in, in the woods. I live on a, uh, you know, 24 acres of land, which is by a river. And, uh, during hunting season, uh, which is, be- I think it's begun. Um, the deer often congregate in our field. We have a big empty field and I, and I walk the dogs out there every day and you can see where the deer have lain together, uh, it, during the night for, uh, shelter and for, uh, warmth, you know, they lay together in a group mm-hmm. and, uh, um, I've encountered a number of deer and I, I remember one encounter in particular where the dogs and I were walking and this young, young male, uh, was, was very bold. And most of the time they run away when they see us, you know, uh, and uh, instantaneously. And this one deer, he he stopped and he stared and we got within, I don't know, 20 feet of him, maybe. Wow. Before wow. he turned and took off. And and he only turned and took off because the dogs, you know, made a move. The dogs were very good. I remember that usually they bark their heads off. But this particular time they just sat down. They were on leashes. And... Uh, and they just laid down and it was like this interesting moment where we connected uh the, the deer and us three <laughs> uh which was very special i've never forgotten it um yeah you know this connection to a wild animal that is really um unique you know even though people you know you on, on instagram or wherever else you often see these images of deer <laughs> coming up to somebody's house or walking through the field and it's nothing special to a lot of people but for me it was a very special moment um to see that i'm sure obviously that moment for your grandfather was very important and uh uh for those who want to know how it turns out i suppose and myself included uh, support the kickstarter in january at uh, a hunter's tale dot com uh i'm looking forward to it and and having look at looked at uh seen a couple preview pages and seen uh ryan's work elsewhere i know that those of us who choose to support it will not be disappointed uh it's a beautiful book uh, it's going to be a beautiful project ryan i know it well thank you so much jeff that truly means a lot and i just can't thank you enough for having me on the podcast here and chatting with me about not only this project, but, you know, my other work as well. This has been a really fun time. Great conversation with you. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. And uh, thanks for being here.
And with that, I hope you will look into HuntersTale.com right away. The Kickstarter is up until the end of January, and I think anybody who loves comics will find this to be an incredibly heartwarming uh, project. It is a really worthwhile, worthwhile endeavor, and I think it is well deserving of your support. And of course, once you have a look at it, I think you'll want to, you'll definitely want to get yourself a copy. So. Uh, Hunterstale.com And while you're looking into Ryan's work Look again at CoinOpCarnival.com You heard us talk about it in the podcast Lots of really cool stuff to look at there And and boy oh boy When was the last time you found a comic book About pinball machines Right? Uh, Maybe there are some some books out there I'm not familiar with But this magazine project A four issue project that Ryan is working on is uh, is chock-a-block full of great stuff about pinball machines and great comics, too. And so, coinupcarnival.com. Uh, look into that. I think you will find it well worth your time. And uh, you'll be a fan of Ryan's work before you know it, just like I am. So, again, huntersdale.com and coinupcarnival.com. we got some great stuff coming up for you here on Blockhead. Uh, next time around, we have a National Book Award winner with us. Nate Powell is going to be here, the great cartoonist Nate Powell, uh, from March, yes, with, with Congressman John Lewis and Anthony Aiden. Uh, that great series of books that won the National Book Award in, 20, I think it was 2016, are here. To, Nate is here to talk about John Lewis, to talk about March, to talk about the latest continuation of that series of books, Run, uh, by John Lewis, Anthony Aiden, Nate Powell, and now... L. Fury, who is uh, uh, one of the major contributors to that that series of books, too. John Lewis, before he passed away in 2020, worked with Anthony Aiden to work out the story and the script. And uh, so we've got another series of books coming run. And this is number one in that series. And I think it, too, will be three books. I'm not sure. But, but Nate will tell us. And it is equally compelling. I've read it, and it is it is really powerful stuff. The story of the civil rights struggle continues after the Voting Rights Act, and it is a series of books that really it not only fills you with hope, but it teaches you how really what perseverance is in the face of overwhelming odds. And Nate Powell, great cartoonist, is here to talk to us about that book and also uh, a a wonderful really moving book called Save It for Later Uh, Nate wasn't content to have one book he had two books out last year Save It for Later is a very personal set of essays about promises parenthood and the urgency of protest it's a very moving book beautifully illustrated and I think uh, I can't wait to talk to him about it so he's going to be here really soon on the heels of this this episode. I'm talking to him next week, as a matter of fact. So look forward to that. I just got off the phone with Dennis Kitchen uh, to complete that the initial foray into a discussion of his career. Last time we got about halfway through, not even halfway through his career. It was just the beginning of the 70s. And there was so much left to, to talk about. And so we got together again. Uh, and continued the conversation, talked about a lot of different stuff, and so look forward to that. Just, I think, uh, that'll be right after Nate. So we've got a lot of great stuff coming at you in 2022, uh, and more to follow that. I've got some some great cartoonists lined up following that, so if that's not enough. So I hope this year is going to be a big one, a really great one for you, a great one also for Blockhead, 
and uh, and your listening enjoyment and uh, my conversational enjoyment because that's what it's about. It's about reaching out and uh, and talking, uh, having continuing the conversation of cartooning and, and art. So we'll be here, yeah, uh, with some great stuff coming at you very soon. And as for me, of course, I'm at uh, on Instagram at Green Screen Comic. Be sure to follow me there. Not only am I working on this, the next follow-up to last year's Kickstarter, Green Screen Number One. Green Screen Number Two is coming up, and I hope to have that Kickstarter out. You know, maybe by March. I hope. Uh, but I, I, at the same time, I'm working on that. I've got another project going, which is sort of an offshoot of Green Screen. It's called the Have a Banana Research Project. If you want to find out what that is all about. Again, on Instagram at Green Screen Comic. Of course, to find out more about me, I'm at jeffgrogan.com. You can you can find out, uh, look at some of my past work and see what I've been doing over the, the number of years. Uh, you can also uh, help out the show on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. Okay, Patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. There's some great rewards. Uh, stuff will show up in your mailbox without any forewarning. Uh, so really, if you're if you want to help out the show, and the show does, it does take some some uh, wherewithal to put this all together. And any support you can you can show is greatly appreciated on Patreon. And even if you can't contribute funds, as I know. Uh, you know, that's not always possible. Listening to the show is a big help. Sharing the show, writing a review for the show, any of those things are really helpful to bring more listeners to the program and uh, and help me keep going. So um, I th- thank you. I thank you for all of your support. I hope that 2021 was a good year for you. I hope 2022 is going to be better. And as always, again, uh, my my great thanks to you. And again, as always, thanks for listening.